Hello and welcome to the Human in the Machine podcast, the podcast about all things HCI. As ever, I'm your host, Professor Ben Cowan. We've got a real treat for you today in this episode. We're speaking to Professor Lewis Chung from Chemnitz University of Technology in Germany. In this part, Lewis talks to us about merging of humans and technology, whilst reflecting philosophically on how perspectives of the purpose of technology are changing and need to change. Chatting to Lewis is always a very illuminating experience, and I think the work he presents here is a brilliant reflection on the fusion of psychological science and engineering. Again, if you like the podcast, please don't forget to review and follow us. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can by emailing us at humaninthemachinepodcast.gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the topics, if you have any ideas for speakers, or if you just want to say hi. All messages are welcomely received. Enough waffling from me, though. Here's the talk from Lewis. Please sit back and enjoy. title of my talk today is Humans, Ampersand, Ampersand, um, Technology. The reason for this might would be a bit clearer in a bit. Um, I had to fight my administration repeatedly whenever I used this for my university talk that this wasn't a typo. So I'm just going to declare right now, it's not a typo. Um, right, so let's begin by just, you know, having a bit of a question and answer or just have the answer in your mind. Um, we could start with a small game that I sometimes play with my daughter. Um, which animal, right, do you think tra can travel the fastest or can em emit a sound that travels the largest distance or can see the furthest? Perhaps you have an, uh, in mind an animal, right, that can travel the fastest, can emit sound that travels the, the largest distance, you can see the furthest, right? Um, if you'd like to, you could type your, your answers in the chat, right? So we can have a look at, at some of your responses. Right, so unfortunately, none of the answers here are correct. Um, the answer really is Anush Schwarzenegger, right? We have through technology, or as we say in Germany, um, Technik, and I'll explain the, the, the nuance and side of difference, um, enabled ourselves to, to reach beyond the capabilities that we were born with. And that's really quite remarkable. Um, now, here's the team. I have this awful, awful weakness of, of tending to forget about them and not thanking them enough for their hard work. So that's, that's the team. And we are, as we say in, in Germany, the, the, uh, Professor or professorship for Mensch und Technik. Now, uh, men should be humans, and Technik is kind of a, a very nuanced word that I'll, I'll get into, but it loosely translates to techniques and technology, right? So, you know, Germans can sometimes also be very dense or condensed with, with, with their, their word use. So let's have a look at this. What's humans and technology, right? So if you think of them as two separate sets, okay, um, you'd have humans on one side, let's say the left side, and you have technology on, on the other side. And when people start thinking about HCI or human-computer interaction or human-technology interaction or human-machine interaction, they usually think of this intersection over there, right? So many might think of, well, that's kind of like the intersection, 
where you know we we think of both humans and technology you might start thinking of cyborgs for example um and my thesis or what i'd like to communicate to many people is that even if this is true that intersection is much more overlapping than you might think that it really is right in fact um i might even go one step further and say, given our current situation where technology forms the landscape or our everyday environment, um, our ability to be, our sense of being, right, is so tightly coupled with the techniques that we've developed to get things done, which might then be automatized or made more efficient through the physical embodiment of actual machines and technology, right? Now, why is the talk titled Humans, Ampersand, Ampersand, Technology? Now, for those in the room who program, uh, you given certain languages, granted, um, you would realize that um, there's a difference between using two ampersands and just the one or just the three, namely that if you're programming and you say, well, let's look for everything in the data, right, that fulfills the condition of being both human and technology, if you use two ampersands, your machine starts checking or, or your script starts stop, stops checking the moment that it detects that um, that, something's, that, uh, that something's human, right? So central to the whole idea is that humans are basically central to, to this whole discussion of humans and technology. Now, here's a very quick introduction for myself, uh, although Ben's done an excellent job. Um, before I left Singapore, where I came from originally, I was greatly interested in psychology. Um, and I did my, I read psychology in York and Manchester, uh, where I was introduced to experimental psychology. Now, this is relevant to some extent because it really shaped the way in which I thought about science, in which I thought about uh, how we could go about measuring humans, right? Um, um, I was greatly influenced by, by pragmatism. The idea that um, ideas, concepts are only useful to the extent to which um, they might deliver a practical outcome. The ability, for example, to test a hypothesis, right? Um, and what technique is in 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 terms of the or as close as you could possibly come to to the German word, which is also close to to the Greek, it's a way of revealing. Right, it's a way of revealing. So you might have some knowledge, or you might have some some sense of your psyche, of your being, which is unrevealed. And through the performance of techniques, um, for example, scooping water from a river with your hands, right, to form uh, a, a receptacle for, for fluids to drink from, you've developed a technique that reveals your who you are. Um, through the development of other receptacles, which might be generalized, we start to streamline and fine tune uh, such receptacles for different purposes that give rise to different situations um, that define our interactions, not only with machines, but also with the world around us and what we can possibly do or change in the world. So one way of thinking about this might be in, when we talk about technique, right? we might start thinking of technology as being an extended body, right? So um, 
Samuel Butler, for example, referred to a machine as being simply a supplementary limb, right? It's that's no different from our limbs, right? That there's something uh, within our essence, like our mind, our soul, whatever you might want it to be, but there's really no difference between our corporal sense, our body, and a spade, right? And the amazing thing about tools, machine, machinery is that it allows us to go beyond what we were born with. It gives us a physical extension of who we are. That And, and machines are supplementary. We can put them on, we can take them off as we wish, um, giving us a sense of our uniqueness, uh, perhaps from other um, beings less capable of instrument formation. And if you look at how some of us learn to actually utilize tools, you might even believe that, um, well, it's not entirely impossible to feel a immediate connection with the tools that we've learned to use to treat them as extensions of our own body. Um, so this just, this is, uh, if you're interested, this would be some psychophysical work where we looked at how humans slowly learn to control a robotic arm with many degrees of freedom, right? Now, if we push this idea a little bit further, we might even say, well, what about the extended mind hypothesis, right? Um, here, um, right here, you'd see the cuneiform text, um, which is one of the earliest forms of writing that we do have. Um, and of course, once we've developed writing to substitute our ability to, to remember stuff, um, what do we use it for? Well, for example, for recipes, right? To, to brew beer, right? We really focus, we have always been able to focus on what's most important, right? So are technologies merely extensions that serve to overcome our physical limitations, right? And if so, what impact do they have on who we are? Right? Now, um, there will be some uh, who would complain and say that, well, technologies are terrible. Um, and that could come from Plato, for example, in Phaedrus, where he said, with writing, we will cease to exercise memory because we no longer rely on, uh, because we, we, we just rely on that which is written, calling things to remembrance no longer from within themselves, but by means of external marks. He was genuinely um, concerned about cognitive decline, right, even in um, the 370 BC. Right, uh, you're going to hear the same naysayers today saying, "Well, what about GPT or large language models? Right? Um, what about the internet? Right? It's it's diminishing our cognitive capability for critical thinking. Right? So, do technologies augment or diminish humans? And this is a theme that I will return to repeatedly in my talk. There's certainly some empirical evidence that an over reliance of technology can diminish um, our so-called cognitive abilities. But that really depends on how you actually measure cognitive abilities. Certainly, over, overall performance might be greatly improved. Um, I'm certain that I would be less capable of retrieving knowledge without the use of the internet compared to if I only had books to rely on, or worse, my memory, right? Um, now, this empirical evidence simply shows that um, when you test individuals um, on, on remembering things, right, they would be less capable of remembering things um, compared to if they, um, so that's compared to if, uh, if, if they were allowed to use the internet 
compared to if they were not allowed to use the internet, so as, as indicated by the black and white bars, right? But what's really interesting is that um, those who relied on the internet, the white bars, it was not that they didn't remember the knowledge, rather they dedicated their memory instead to remembering how to retrieve that information, right? So it's not so much a decrement or diminishing of cognitive capability, it's a qualitative transformation of, of using what we have, right? Similarly, um, many of us would, would laugh at, at images like these, where you would see a truck driver following a GPS or satnav um, without question, only to find himself stuck in an alleyway, right? So perfectly legitimate route that doesn't take someone's um, the current situation into account or the, the, the nuances of the context into account, right? And if you measure the brains of, of taxi drivers um, um, before and after they're being trained to drive a taxi in London, you would see that the gray matter intensity um, would actually be different in, um, as a result of the training, whereby qualified trainees have much larger gray matter in the hippocampus compared to those who weren't trained, right? So. What I'm really trying to say is um, the whole experience of, of using our brains or cognitive abilities, I'm not so much concerned about the question of whether technologies augment or diminish our, our cognitive abilities. The question really is, well, who are we, right? Um, and how much of it is based on our actual cognitive experience and interaction with the world, right? If um, Descartes would say something like, I exist or I am because I'm capable of reasoning because I think. What does it mean if, as I'm sure many of you be nodding in agreement with me in our current state, um, that we think with techniques and technology? So who are we, right? How much of this impact our sense of being? So let's have a bit of a thought experiment, right? If you encounter a piece of alien technology, what would you typically do to discover its nature? Now, I have an example of alien technology um, when presented to children, okay? Where they have to guess what something like this might be. Actually, is a device that plays music. Oh, oh. so we will play music today? Oh, here, radio and FM, stop, play, okay. What are you talking about? You got it, Okay, now what, what, what worries me somewhat is that there might be, in fact, everyone in the room might actually not know what this thing is. <laughs> As opposed to better myself. So this is a Walkman, which plays cassette tapes, right? That then pipes music into your ears through wired headphones, okay? Right? So now think about this. If you encounter an alien technology, whatever that might be, what would you typically do to figure out what, what it is, right? Many of us would start playing around with concepts and theories to determine its use, okay? Um, we would start to develop hypotheses of, well, what happens? If I press this, what happens next? If I do that, what happens next, right? Um, and that's our first initial contact with any alien technology. Um, we don't think about them in terms of reality or ultimate truth, right? We think of them as instruments. What purpose do they serve? Now, what happens 
if we flip this around? What if you take a human with existing ways of doing things and present them with new technology? You might end up with instances like this, where in order to replicate an image, right, someone would use their smartphone to take a photo of an image displayed on a different smartphone, right? Or someone might use a magnifying glass to enlarge text that they cannot easily read on a tablet, okay? Or, and, and we might even experience this, right? Um, with um, when, when a Windows user starts to use a Mac, for example, and they go, oh, I really don't like this, that, that you know, I, I really don't like that when I push up, you know, it, it, the, the cursor goes up and, and down, and so I'm just gonna flip the mouse around, right? So we, we always bring ways that modes of, of, of doing things to the technology that we encounter, right? So how do we think about technology? The answer might be, especially with technology that, that, that are best designed, many of us might want to, to look for a situation where we don't think about technology at all, right? Here's an example. Many of us who learn how to ride a bicycle know that the moment we start thinking about riding the bicycle, we might start to fall down. The best interactions to those where we don't think about the technology at all, they're just part of our being. When asked to draw a bicycle, these were the responses on the right um, of adults, in fact, adult cyclists, of what bicycles are um, as pieces of equipment, right? And you could test yourself right now to ask what's the correct answer. And there's only one, right? And that's the one I hope I'm right now. That's the one over there, I think, okay, right? But the best technology are oftentimes the one that we don't even think about at all. Um, so what do we do in my professorship? Well, first of all, we believe that psychology provides the ideas and concepts that allow humans and technology to be compatible. Think about it this way. The development cycle, the iteration of technology has a really short time span, right? Um, it's pretty obsessing, but my smartphone's not obsolete, but out of date within the space of nine months. That's the development cycle, right? My body, my brain, right? That's been very slowly, if you believe in evolution, which I do, right? that's had a much longer development cycle to the extent that it might even seem that we've not changed at all since the beginning of time, right? And somehow it's nothing short of a miracle, if you wish, that we're able to make use of these engineered technology with short development cycles in a way that they're compatible with who we are, right? And the glue that binds these two together are the theories and concepts that we've developed um, of what such technology might be used for. So as, uh, as a young psychology student, I was very much motivated to measure the world, um, even things that might not be tangible, like the psyche or, or the mind of the human, right? So how can we start measuring and matching um, how physical metrics might match to psychological metrics an endeavor referred to as psychophysics, right? So we would start doing things like uh, modifying the physical parameters of objects and seeing um, where in the brain, in terms of a 
physical response, believe, uh, if we believe that the mind resides in the brain and that brain activity reflects mental, uh, mental activity, then you might come up with, with lines that look like this that refer to when your brain is guessing 50-50, uh, it, it can't tell between whether two, two objects or two physical parameters are the same or different. Right, and how then it becomes more and more confident to say, well, these two things are different. We start measuring things and uncertainty, right? Um, and one motivation even then um, as, a, uh, as an early student was to work with technologies like virtual reality to look at how people really experience the world as it might really be instead of inside a black room. Um, now this approach is one that um, I'm gonna speak against. Um, or does it, it no longer represents my my way of thinking, um, but it is nonetheless still very very useful. We can be measuring many activities or man, many physical behavior of humans, um, including eye movements, for example. Um, but as you might see from from here, eye movements change depending on how we interact with the world, right? So we might be doing clever things like saying, well, what is the world really? Maybe the world can be defined in terms of um, pixels on an image where we can refer to it in terms of red, green, and blue values, the change uh, or the first derivative of, of, um, of um, um, contours in the X or the Y dimension, the second derivative, we can come up with all sorts of metrics, right? We can even think of how eyes might move around this, this, this map of, of values in, in order to retrieve as much information as possible, right? And we might even publish papers to, to describe, well, as you can see from this metric, um, humans are different in terms of the, uh, the probability of their long or short saccades, depending on the complexity of images, which we've defined in terms of um, this mathematical formula, et cetera, et cetera. We can be doing things like this, right? But we come back to this criticism by, by Max Wertheimer, who says, well, if I stand at a window and I see a house, trees, and skies, we might say things like there are 327 brightness and nuances of color, but do I ever say 327? No, I have a phenomenon. I see the sky, the house, and the trees, right? We don't see black lines upon white lines in that image. We see a zebra, right? So, oh, okay. So now I'm going to talk about how we actually encounter technology and why it's worth thinking about this. Um, more recently, I've started to think about, um, well, that that's a luxury or a privilege once you have a permanent position. Um, you, start, you start indulging yourself with a little bit of philosophy, right? So for those of you here who might be um, familiar with phenomenology, I might be telling you something that, that you have no idea about. But when Heidegger talks about not technology per se, but in terms of how we interact with the world, perhaps through tools, he has two states, one in which he refers to as suhanden and one to which he refers to as forhanden. Now, suhanden refers to read readiness to hand, in which um, if I have a hammer, I don't think about the hammer, I just start whacking stuff with its intended function. The only time where I might have forhanden, when I start to think of the hammer, is when it no longer works, when I critically analyze it. And that might might in fact be treated as a criticism of the whole enterprise of reductionist and experimental science, 
right? Which was what I was trained in. And I'm not criticizing, I, well, I am criticizing it, but I, I don't think we should throw everything out, right? I'm just saying it's, it's worthwhile to sometimes think about the limitations of what we do or what we're trained in. Let me give you an example. So here's here's my daughter doing suhanden, right? She doesn't think about the hammer, right? She just thinks about what is this good for, and I'm going to keep using it, right? It has a readiness to hand, right? And the only time when um, she might experience okay, a presence, right? Okay, okay. The only time she might experience a, a presence at hand is when she faces a barrier. In this case, myself, who frustrates her to say, "Well, think about what you're doing, right? Stop hammering the ham, uh, stop hammering the wall." Okay. So if we think of tools as body extensions, where do we draw the line? Could our own body serve as technology? Is our body a machine, right? And perhaps it is. Um, that's why I that that's why we might be doing eye tracking to look at how we might make use of this communication channel that we can sweep around the world to retrieve and pick up information or detailed information at the right time. For example, when we're piloting planes, right? And what you might see would be when you look at experience versus, or rather competent versus less competent um, pilots of a B0105 uh, helicopter, you would see that those who are very competent have a highly predictive um, pattern of where they would look at next, given that the eye movements are currently on a given instrument, compared to someone else for whom the probability or the distribution of the eye movements are all over the place, right? So there are those of us who are more adept at using our bodies as tools compared to those who are less competent in doing that. Now, we might choose at this point in, uh, in time to mock those who are less competent. And if, if necessary, I can reveal that this is me. I'm subject four, right? But impairments or a lack of uh, uh, competence can be a very situational thing, right? So I could take someone like S1 or subject one and make them really anxious and make them really, really stressed, which does nothing but give me glee and joy, right? So what would this do, right? Um, attentional control theory would suggest that we have limited resources, um, endogenous and exogenous attention, okay? And we're only really capable of exploiting goal-directed attention um, in moving our eyes and shifting our attention to be at the right place at the right time to retrieve that information when we're at peace, when we're, when we're in the flow. But the moment we're anxious, we just respond to everything that might be out there, okay? And we end up being driven by um, stimulation in the outside world instead, right? Which just makes the whole issue of being anxious even worse. How do you induce anxiety in the laboratory experiment? Well, what we did was we gave them specific instructions that they were now being tested. We told them that they now stood, the, uh, they now had the opportunity of winning um, some prize money. We told them that, they, um, that their performance would now be um, in real time submitted to a virtual air traffic simulation um, environment. So if they failed to fly properly, um, they might collide with someone else in the same system and ruin someone else's day. 
Now that didn't work as well because Germans are a very collected lot. So what we added on top of that was a video camera in the room that said, by the way, we're going to film you like what Ben is doing to me right now, right? <laughs> so lots of anxiety and said, you know, don't worry. We're just filming this uh, for training purposes. And there's no way we would ever use your film um, unless you happen to be the worst participant um, and only for training purposes. So did that work? Well, that certainly worked with regards to the self-reported um, cognitive anxiety. Um, those um, who were manipulated accordingly um, in the anxiety condition reported greater levels of anxiety, um, as well as um, higher um, heartbeats per minute compared to those who did not experience this, this anxiety manipulation. But more interestingly, it affected their ability to collect information as well. It affected their ability to use their bodies as a tool. So you might say, well, how do we solve this problem? Well, let's design some technology, some, uh, some non-organic artificial technology to compensate for this situational impairment, right? Where people might not be able to know where to look because uh, they're anxious, because they might be ruminating and on, 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 I don't know, a recent breakup, et cetera, right? So let's de device, especially with virtual reality um, or augmented reality, let's design something to support them, right? Um, let's have a heads-up display like this that tells them where to look, okay? Um, and what happens when we design things like this? Well, we start to see pilots who are so fixated in attending to this heads-up display that they fail to notice um, unexpected events outside the tasks of monitoring this heads-up display. They fail to notice things like another um, jet on the landing strip itself. So um, we, we've done EEG experiments to look at how the brain might respond to um, different sounds in the environment, to, to look at this issue of when might you be inattentionally blind or inattentionally deaf to, um, to events in the world. Um, in the interest of time, I'm not really gonna talk about this a lot. Um, the take home message being that um, we can we can look at these, these wave patterns and the amplitudes to be estimating someone's ability to attend to the outside world, okay? I want to shift to a slightly different topic that might be more relevant to, uh, to today's lecture, which might be this idea of symbiosis. Now, the idea that human and computers can coexist and, um, and, and work well together um, or cooperate in a way that they, they, they rely on one another is, is not a new one, right? So JCR Lick leader proposed um, human-computer symbiosis since the 1960s, where they might be so tightly coupled that, um, that you can't tell who's responsible for what. Now, in 1960, he mentioned that symbiosis was going to be a long, long way away because of five prerequisites. Um, a mismatch in speed, Computers were way too slow for real-time cooperative thinking with only one person. But think about the first-person shooter games that you have today, right? Is speed mismatch still an issue? Um, Link leader said that, well, we have another issue with modern-day computers, meaning in the 1960s, that there's not enough hardware to store all the knowledge that humans have accumulated and have uncovered in history. Well, think about 
um, Wikipedia, right? Is this requirement, is this barrier still there? We might not be able to organize um, our knowledge in a way that allows for retrieval, right? Now, League Leader was thinking in terms of punch cards that you have to flip through to find the correct script in the right order. Well, many of us can easily submit an image and say, well, Google, um, find me this dress that I really like um, and where to buy it, right? Um, League Leader said that there was a, a, a barrier of language, that computers did not recognize natural languages. Um, but now we have um, speech interfaces that, I mean, I should embarrass myself in front of Ben, right? But we have speech interfaces that, that are capable of understanding our speech commands, um, that we might have a semi-decent conversation with, um, but it really depends on the benchmark and I'm really comparing it to my three-year-old daughter. So, um, and input-output equipment, right? Lake Leader said that displays and controls of computers in his time were not more immediate than electric typewriter. And that's going to be a, a barrier to genuine partnership, right? But are these still barriers that we might be facing today, right? Um, I'm just gonna show quick example um, of efforts in not my current lab, but my old lab to think of how we could make this interface more invisible, perhaps by coupling eye movements to images on the screen, such that when you look at something, the image might get bigger. It might render itself according to the requirements of the task, whether you might be looking at an image or whether you might want to use it to read text um, for which you might rely on, uh, you might require very different rendering requirements, right? But one way certainly to think about it is, well, if I can access something simply by looking at it and instead of using a, a mouse, right? Um, shouldn't I just get rid of the mouse to point at stuff, right? Why don't I just um, use the eye to pick things up, right? And there's nothing wrong with thinking about that. In fact, you might even think, well, um, that would serve as um, technology to support those who might be um, who, who might have manual impairments, right? Um, for example, if you suffer from Parkinson or if, if you have a, a limb loss, right? So we tried something like this and it didn't work very well, um, at least not back then, in terms of if we were simply to replace moving a mouse with, um, with using your eyes. And one reason for that, so magic would be the, the interface where we use gaze-controlled interfaces as a replacement for using the hands. Now, the jury is still out as to why that might not work. But one reason that we noticed for sure, well, so, so it might be experience that, that our participants were simply inexperienced with this completely brand new interface, right? Um, but one reason for that might be this break that we introduced, which Heidegger refers to as a brook, right? That whilst our phenomena of, of, of casting our gaze around might seem um, fluid, where we, we, we move our gaze from one side to the other, um, the reality is they're not really as fluid as we think they are. We just do not realize that when we cast our gaze from one point to a different point, we still make many small corrective saccades um, to serve the task that we really wanted for. So if we actually want to do a reading, right, we don't actually realize that our eyes are moving from one word to the next, right? We are just simply reading, right? And the problem with technology that's designed too accurately, as we did in this case, would be that it responded to every break 
in the instrument manipulation that was that that in our mind ought to serve as a continuous experience, right? So imagine reading a text and having the words pop out every time um, your eye falls on it. That's a very disturbing experience. This brings up the point of, well, can, how do we design breaks? What, um, what should we, um, how do we design breaks um, to bring about readiness at hand? Now, this is a relevant topic if we want to capture someone's interest, for example, in an automated vehicle, right? To alert them to the need, for example, to take over the vehicle control because an unexpected barrier might be on the road, for example. How do we actually um, design such breaks to be intuitive? Um, one way in which we've um, looked at would be to create sounds that, that, that are similar to how we might experience them in the real world. Um, looming sounds. So if, if you have things approaching you, they grow in size, not only visually, but also auditorily. So you, if you hear a sound that goes like, Ooh, right, you might mentally pair that with something that's approaching you, Ooh, right? So such looming sounds also communicate a sense of urgency um, of something that's approaching you. And indeed, when you measure brain activity, you would see um, parts of the brain um, activate um, preferentially that might underlie performances in terms of faster breaking times. So that's one way of thinking of how we might actually be designing um, technology in a way that minimizes the sense of, well, that's technology over there um, and it ought to be um, different from what we experience every day in the real world. Now, there is a critique until this point in time um, of how we might be thinking of, um, how we might be thinking of technology, right? If we go back a long way back in time um, to Aristotle, and we think about objects in the world, right? Aristotle would say that there are four causes to an object in the world existing. There is its material cause. We can ask if we see an object like a table, what is it made of? What material um, is it, does it consist, uh, comprises it? We could ask a question in terms of its formal cause. How is this thing designed, right? What is its form, right? What gave rise to its form? We could ask for its efficient cause. What was the process that created the object? Or we could ask a fourth and final cause, which is what is this object good for? Now, here's an opinion. Um, one criticism of how we're designing technology today might be that we're overly focused on, of these four possible causes, the final cause. We might only be thinking of technology purely in terms of what are they good for, which, to be fair, is how I've been dealing with um, my, uh, how I've been treating technology and up to this point in time in my talk. I've been talking about them purely as tools, as instruments. What are they good for? What's their function? 
as if that's the only thing that defines its being, right? Um, if you're German, you've come across words like this, Eierschalen soll Bruchstellen verursacher, which means eggshell breaker, right? The name of the object is entirely focused on its function and nothing else. But can technology more can technology be more than purely um, its uh, than its final cause? Can it be defined in more than its final cause? Can they be, um, for example, partners? Um, for example, do we design a robot purely to serve a function in the world, uh, to sense information from the world, and to act upon it according to a script of interpretations, plans, and decisions? Or should we design them to be um, more like humans? And I'm not saying that this is what a human is, but we certainly know that humans are complicated, where they have prior beliefs, um, they have events that bear different significance and different meanings to different individuals. They have this very messy thing called desires. They have intentions. Um, technology is very different from humans. But if we're going to start designing um, co-agents in the world, to what extent do we need to enable these artificial agents to be able to observe um, us and to make inferences about our uh, what what we might also be seeing to predict um, what our intentions might be given our beliefs and events and to direct direct our attention and maybe um, direct our actions um, in ways that might be consistent with the overall goal. Until now, I've been talking about technology purely in terms of a either worker tool relationship or a customer server relationship. Right? Is there a different way? Right? And the, the main issue with thinking of it purely as instrumentalism is that, and once again, it's, it's a problem uh, uh, brought up by, by Heidegger, Das Gestell, or the end framing. Once we think like this, we start, once we think purely in terms of purpose and function, we start to think of everything as a resource, an input that results in an output. Um, the woods or the forest exist purely as an input or fuel for fire, right? Um, or to deliver the output of um, boiling water, right? And what if we overgeneralize this way of thinking um, back on ourselves again? What if we start to think of everything in this world as a bastan or a standing reserve if technology merely serves the final cause and then frames its contents as a standing reserve that is always for use, where do we start to draw the line in terms of um, resources that serve the engine? What kind of technology would we start to design, right? Um, to exploit our bastan or our, our standing reserve in the world, right? Here are some psychologists, um, they treated, um, they, they, they created a field called psychotechnic that talk about psychology and techniques and technology purely in terms of their functional relationship. Um, they argued that the question over what is right or not right or what is moral is not a topic for academia or for psychotechnicians. Uh, 
um, because the goal is simply to get the job done, Aufgabe, to get the task done, right? And whether it can be done right. How much of this contributes to our sense of being, right? Are there different ways of thinking about our relationship with technology? So um, I've been greatly inspired and I, I, I encourage you to have a look at the work of Don Eder, uh, Peter Forfabeek, okay? Uh, they're both philosophers um, and they've moved on from, from um, phenomenology uh, or Martin Heidegger and, and uh, Edvard uh, Husserl to talk about technology and these concepts of, of, of phenomenon of our experiences and contact with the world uh, to think about them pragmatically nonetheless, right? So we could think about this purely as a way of communication. Technology could serve as a medium for communication. It serves to transfer energy from the outside world or environment that's the sender of information. It's a channel that encodes and decodes messages to the receiver, the human. The same technology or other technology can serve to feedback or to send information from now the sender, the human, back to the outside world. And the outside world could comprise other humans, the environment, um, it could be whatever you might like it to be. Now, what Don Eder and Peter Fabik has granted us is a language to start thinking about technology more than just um, what is it good for, right? So we could think of technology in terms of embodiment, where a human and technology might be so tightly coupled together. Uh, oh, sorry, it could be loosely coupled together, human technology in brackets, in a way that directs towards the world to offer new experiences novel ways of seeing the environment, the world around us, right? It could, technology could serve as a hermeneutic experience um, whereby technology is, is itself coupled with the outside world to present a new way of, um, of communication, a, a different language, maybe a visual language, right? To communicate uh, how we interpret and perceive the world, right? so that we're no longer looking at the world, but a combined representation of technology and the world, right? We could think of more modern devices where um, technology itself, human and technology could themselves be bundled together, for example, through the use of um, AR headsets, right? Um, to look at the world and the world itself presents, um, the world coupled with technology presents itself um, ways of, um, thinking about the world, right? Now, the good thing about, about this is that it makes more transparent our ethical obligations in terms of influencing the human as it might be. I'm sorry, I, I do apologize for this. This might be um, the, the kindergarten. Okay, anyway, right. So here is a system that, that sends information to a worker just in time, it's a, you can think of it as a communication medium. It sends information just in time to say, which piece should you build with which other piece at the right point in time, okay? Um, where we show that projected instru instructions that followed the hands around and, and, and determine which piece was being picked up were much easier and faster to understand than paper instructions and that this light was a good guidance, right? Indeed, um, if you're looking at, at brain activity as well as number of errors, 
you would see that a projection system resulted in fewer errors. And in this mental workload, in terms of alpha power from EEG measurements, you would also see that the projection system um, resulted in higher alpha power, which is consistent as well with, for example, the practice of meditation, right? That puts you more at a state of rest. Now, what's tricky though is that um, even if one might feel that it's easier, individuals might start expressing things like, I felt like a robot during the, the assembly process, right? The human started to feel like they were themselves a standing reserve, right? And it wasn't clear what their purpose was in such a case. Now, here is a classical psychology experiment um, that shows, sorry, that, that shows pressures from society and how they shape our behavior, okay? As a candid star, these folks who are entering, the man with the white shirt, the lady with the trench coat, and subsequently one other member of our staff will face the rear. And you'll see how this man in the trench coat <laughs> maintain his individuality. But little by little, <laughs> he looks at his watch, but he's really making an excuse for turning just a little bit more. Okay, so um, this was a classical social psychology experiment that showed the extent to which pressures from society, peer behavior might influence and constrain our own behavior. Um, and what's going to happen with so-called ubiquitous technology? Well, here's a picture taken at the Vatican um, in 2005 and 2013, right? Societal pressures, the, uh, the ubiquity of, of technology does exert social pressures on how we choose to communicate and to perceive the world, right? Um, if we look at how robots might themselves be influencing us, right? Um, even with small, simplistic avatars like this, uh, individuals uh, or participants in such an experiment reported feeling pressure from little robots like this in changing their decision on a presumably on a objective task um, when these robots were made to stare at them okay um, and well that's really the main finding I, I won't go into much more detail okay i'm going to end with one last example where um, technology might be implemented even in situations where we have very little control over um, for example in aeroplanes now um, there was this Ethiopian and Lion Air crash um, by um, both involving Boeing 737 planes. And one of the reasons for that was a faulty sensor. Now, what really happened here was that Boeing needed to install these massive jet engines beneath the wing, but they resulted in um, these jets having a higher having a greater tendency of being overly inclined, risking stall. So what they implemented was sensors that whenever the plane went over 10 degrees to just very so gently push the plane down, 
right? Um, to, to support the pilot in not making the pilot error of over inclination and stalling the plane, right? But what they didn't anticipate was that when the sensor read the reading just slightly wrongly and perceived that a plane was inclined, even when in reality it wasn't, it freaked the pilots out who started to push the plane further down, right? And you would think, well, how could such an accident occur at all? Well, that's that's because, especially when um, Boeing itself believed that it provided sufficient warnings um, to counteract uh, potential miscommunications or confusion between the plane and the pilots. Well, that's because a different department was responsible for selling an optional warning light to indicate a potential disagreement between the uh, between automation, between automation um, and the pilot themselves. Okay, neither Lion Air nor Ethiopia uh, Airlines had this particular warning light to resolve, to point out and resolve potential conflicts between what the human intended or perceived and what the sensor perceived. Right um, now. I'm going to leave you with that sobering thought and to think about how we could perhaps create situations where we don't simply think of humans and technology as two separate entities, right? But perhaps as partners, where the goal isn't so much um, to simply achieve a purpose, but perhaps to create an experience. Again, thanks so much, Lewis. I, for one, am looking forward to a world of human technology partnership, if only to have technology share the jobs I don't want to do. Again, don't forget to review and follow us, and if you want to get in contact with us, you can by emailing us at humaninthemachinepodcast at gmail.com. All that's left for me to say is, as ever, I've been Ben Cowan. Stay curious, and don't let the machines get you down. Until next time.